Well, you might recall how at the beginning of COVID, people started hoarding food. Some out of fear, they maybe only wanted to go to the market once a month. But there's one problem with that strategy, and that is perishables. People tend to need things like fruit and vegetables and bread, and they don't keep a whole month. They don't last forever. Some don't last very long. And fruit seem to go especially quick. A few hardier fruits like apples might last a few weeks, but things like berries, you've got days. They're little ticking time bombs. I'm sure you've all had the experience of buying a carton of strawberries at the market. You take it home, the next day, you open the lid, and that white, moldy strawberry is just staring right at you. Now, you're not going to eat that, right? Of course, you have standards, but I wonder, what is your tolerance level? Would you just throw out the one or two moldy berries and eat the rest? Or if you're like my wife, the whole carton has to go. You know, do you treat the best buy date on food as a suggestion or a line in the sand? You taste that milk and it tastes just a little bit sour. Do you keep going and live on the edge a little bit or you throw the whole thing away? Either way, everyone has some standard because the food we eat goes bad. Fruit spoils, milk sours. What was once perfectly good becomes at some point unacceptable where you're going to reject it. We understand that. We have standards. Should it really surprise you that God is the same way, only more so? You know, one of the reasons God saved us was that so that we would then go and bear fruit. And before we were like bad trees, you might say, rotten to the core. And all that came out of us was bad fruit. And living in rebellion, nothing we did was pleasing to him. But that's why in his mercy, he sent Christ, the Savior, to redeem us. And as you place your faith in him in the moment of salvation, you're transformed. You go from being like a bad tree to a good tree. This happens apart from your works, your deeds of righteousness, just a gift of his grace, which you access by faith and you become a good tree. And then, and only then, only after that, does he then expect you to bear good fruit. Everyone who plants a fruit tree wants one thing from it, and that is fruit. Jesus said in John 15, 8, that God is glorified when you bear much fruit. And you know, we're not talking apples and oranges here, but, but deeds of righteousness, Good works. This is what delights God and and the bearing of the fruit of righteousness after we come to salvation, that it blesses our lives as well. However, even good fruit from good trees can rot. And the harvest of our righteous deeds doesn't always make it to his table. Some fruit spoils along the way, and, and God has his own standards. He will reject even otherwise good deeds if done with impure motives. And this is a problem. I mean, no believer would want this, just like the farmer would shudder at the thought that half of his harvest didn't make it to the marketplace because it spoiled along the way. So should we. And even worse, what if that farmer didn't get paid for that half of the harvest that rotted? That would be so futile. We don't want our new lives in Christ to be futile, to be wasted. We want our deeds to count, to truly glorify God. Of course, we're not talking about earning our salvation or even paying God back for our salvation, but just out of an abundance of love for him, we, we now we want to glorify him and live for him. We want to bear much fruit and bring him glory. What if you learned that the bulk of your deeds were really like the wood, hay, and straw that, that burn up on the last day and come with no reward? Think of all the good things you do now being a Christian. And what if despite doing all the deeds, they, they didn't count? They didn't glorify God. That would be tragic. That would be shocking. That would be depressing. You'd wish someone had given you a a wake-up call sooner. 
I don't know if this describes you or not, but I do know we all could use one of these wake-up calls. And Christ believes the same thing. He's the one who gives it. That's what we find in our passage this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 6. So take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 6 to follow along. Because in this text, Jesus is the one who wakes us up. We're continuing to plot our way through Christ's Sermon on the Mount. There's no need to rush, though. This is his masterpiece. We want to take our time to behold the greatest sermon ever told. We come to a new section here, though, in chapter 6. It starts with this main admonition, verse 1, that governs everything to follow down through verse 18. So it it all starts back up at verse 1 with this new section. Matthew 6, 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And sadly, this type of self-righteous hypocrisy characterized the religious leaders of the day. But, you know, this, this propensity to be noticed by others, to be honored, that, that resides in all of our hearts. Even good deeds can be spoiled when they're done from these impure, self-seeking motives. I mean, God cares what we do. He cares how we live. But the motives behind our actions matter just as much to him. I mean, you can work genuine righteousness, but if it's done out of a desire to be praised, it's sour milk to God. He's going to spit it out. And to make sure we heed this warning, after verse 1, Jesus follows it up with three vivid illustrations. They're like three hammer blows just pounding down the point. Don't do all the the good things you do just to be seen by others. So in verses 2 through 4, he uses the example of giving. Verses 5 through 15, he uses the example of praying. Verses 16 through 18, the example of fasting. Everyone would describe these three deeds as spiritual fruit. But if if they're done for your own glory and not the Lord's, then they're rotten. And he, he does not accept them. And we covered the first example of giving last time. So today we're moving on to the second of these examples, praying. Now, prayer very well may be the sweetest spiritual fruit to God. I mean, it's an expression of pure faith. It's perhaps the most spiritual thing we can do, enter his presence. But just as the sweetest fruits seem to spoil so quickly, so it can be with prayer. It's not enough just to recite some religious words addressed to God. That, that by itself does not make a righteous deed. That's not prayer by itself. You must get the motive and the manner of prayer right. Then comes the deed. Then God will accept your harvest. And that's what Jesus addresses here in this text. Again, just how tragic would it be to learn that, that maybe like half your prayer life was never heard by the Lord, was never received. We hear all these stories of great prayer warriors. Maybe this, this saint wakes up early, prays three hours a day, every day. And on the surface, we, we, we're in awe. We, like, how, how devout, how holy, how godly. And maybe they are. But if those prayers come from the wrong motive or in the wrong manner, we're talking about three hours a day wasted. God is not interested in us just being little robots going through certain motions. That's not by itself worship. He wants first our hearts and our minds. Then he wants our deeds. It's not either or, it's both and, but the heart and mind must come first. And when it does come, then we have pleasing prayer. We need to figure this out though. What, what 
What makes prayer go wrong? How does it turn sour? What is the right motive and the right manner for prayer? That's what Christ is going to tell us and wake us up to in this passage. Matthew 6, 5 through 8 is what we're going to tackle this morning. So follow along as I read it for us. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. He carries on. The second example. He says this. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. In this text, we're going to find two ways the righteous deed of prayer turns sour and what to do about it. Two ways the righteous deed of prayer turns sour and, and what we can do about it. And the first is simply this, getting the motive of prayer wrong. Getting the motive of prayer wrong. Verses 5 through 6, this is Christ's teaching on prayer as it stems from verse 1, where he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. So here, this is what it looks like with prayer. And to illustrate this, he's going to use the exact same outline as he used with giving. He he uses a repeated outline in these three examples. He uses a warning, a rebuke, a command, and a promise. I'll do that each time. These are all focused on addressing that the motive of prayer. And so we're going to unpack verses 5 and 6. Let's just use Christ's own outline for some subpoints here. So let's start with this warning. First, the warning. It's in verse 5. He says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Now, first, you'll notice how Jesus starts verse 5. He's talking to his disciples. It doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. He's already assuming that his disciples will pray. This is not a question. This is not an option. Prayer is an essential spiritual discipline. It's a primary means of communing with God in heaven. And Christ himself was devoted to prayer. He expects us to be as well. We are to pray like Jesus. We are not to pray like the hypocrites. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. That term hypocrite we saw back in verse 2. And you might recall it originally referred to a stage actor in ancient Greek theater. One who wore a mask to portray a character on the stage. But in real life, of course, they were nothing like that character. It was just just a show. But this word came to be used of all sorts of pretenders. Those who appear one way on the outside, but on the inside, they're totally different. Or those who appear one way in public, but in private, they'd be unrecognizable. They're the hypocrite. And Jesus frequently took issue with religious hypocrites. And in his day, sadly, that was the top guys, the religious leaders. They wore these religious masks. Outwardly, they they appeared super righteous, super godly. But inwardly, they were full of unrighteousness. And so Jesus, he's just unmasked them all the time. Now, regarding the religious hypocrite, how did their 
deed of prayer go sour? Well, he explains here in verse 5, he says, for they love to pray. Now, if that's all verse 5 said, we'd have no problem here. We'd, we'd go home. Okay, that, that's a good thing. His disciples should love to pray. But, of course, that's not all verse 5 says. It says they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? It says so that they may be seen by men. Now, stemming from verse 1, that they're, they're practicing this deed of righteousness, prayer, just in order to be noticed by others. So you see what Jesus, he's calling out here. It's, it's not really their prayers. It's the motive behind their prayers. That's the problem. They're really praying not to commune with God, but just to exalt self. And that is a big problem. See that word standing in verse five or, or to stand. This verb is a perfect active participle. What that just means is it describes an action that takes place before the action of the main verb. And that matters here, that the main verb in verse 5 is actually to love. So what he's saying is that these hypocrites, they love to pray only after they've stood up to be noticed. Implying that they don't love to pray otherwise. And the, the word order in the Greek of verse 5 really confirms this. It literally reads, for they love, having stood in the synagogues and on the street corners to pray. These people only love to pray when there's an audience. That's because they, they don't actually love prayer. They, they love themselves. They want others to love them. And prayer is a means to that end for them to be noticed, to be praised. You see how two locations are mentioned for their public parade of piety through prayer? At first, the synagogues. These were their local places of gathering and uh, when they would gather for worship. They would appoint just a, someone from the congregation to lead the time in prayer. And this was a coveted position. It came with honor. And some evidently jockeyed for this position in order to be seen. I mean, what a perfect opportunity to be noticed, to pray in front of the whole synagogue, and to, to be puffed up, and feel really good when people came up after service and pat you on the back and say, what a beautiful prayer. The second location mentioned is the street corner. Now, unlike verse 2, this word for street refers to like a main Broadway, a big street. Really a, a, a corner of a main street. But just think of where two major streets come together and you have a busy intersection. And look, advertisers know this. Most of the main billboards you find on those busy streets and corners and intersections. See those guys flipping their signs, advertising some new cell phone company. Like they're always on the corner of a busy intersection. You don't see those guys flipping their signs in like a quiet cul-de-sac, <laughs> which would be rather creepy, actually, if you saw that. Now that they know they're going to go where they're going to be seen by the most people, and so it goes for these religious hypocrites. They make a point to stop on the busy corner. And pray. Now, they, they weren't always so obvious with their intentions. Because you see, the Jews had regular times of prayer, scheduled times of prayer. For example, at the time of the afternoon offering, if you're in Jerusalem, a temple would, or a, a trumpet would sound, and that would signal for all the devout Jews to stop what they're doing right then and there and pray. So we kind of get the impression that these, these hypocrites, they would kind of schedule their day so they just happen to be walking by a busy intersection at the time of the afternoon prayer. The trumpet sounds like, oh, 
what do you know? I'm, I'm stuck here in this busy intersection. I, I guess I'm just going to have to stop and pray right here in front of all these people. That's the impression we get. And their hearts, their motives were clear. They were doing their deeds to be seen by men. God can see right through their mask. He can see through their heart. And so can Jesus. And so he's calling out their selfish motives. I mean, it's sad to think something like prayer can be corrupted like this. But again, even the sweetest fruits can spoil. None of us are immune to this so long as any remnant of pride exists in our hearts. And it does. And so we need to heed this warning. What's the warning? When you pray, don't be like them. Don't do that. If you do, you're going to receive the rebuke. That comes second. Secondly, the rebuke. First, the warning. Second, the rebuke. It's, it's simple. He says, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And with each example he gives, he gives the same rebuke, short, sweet, to the point. They have their reward in full. Meaning the only reward they'll receive for their deeds is, is that which they sought after, namely that the praise of men. That's what they'll get. And that's it. That, that's a rather cheap prize, though. It's a perishable wreath. It doesn't last long. It's not very good. What they won't find is any approval from God. No reward, no blessing, no treasure in heaven, no imperishable wreath, nothing. It's like Jesus said of the Pharisee in a parable of Luke 18 that they're really just praying to themselves. Right? They, they might be addressing God in their prayers, but they're just talking to themselves and they're doing it so that others see them and praise them. They're hunting after man's praise. And you know, oftentimes they'll get it. People around them who are held under the thumb of works religion will look at their devotion and think, wow, so godly, so holy. Look at all their prayers. And they'll give them the praise they're seeking. That's all they'll get though. They're not going to get anything from the Lord. Their deeds are in vain. But you are to be different. You here who are true disciples of Christ, you're called to be quite different. How? Let's just move on to the next point. Thirdly, the command. Verse 6, Jesus corrects us with the command. He says, but you, clear contrast for his disciples, you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. Jesus instructs us here that instead of praying to be noticed by others, just, just, you're just talking to your father in heaven, just go pray in secret. Don't pray in public, pray in secret. Jesus references an inner room. This is a room inside a building that had no doors or windows to the outside. So kind of like a closet. And he says, go in this inner room, shut the door behind you, emphasizing like total isolation. You're in there all by yourself. And there in that quiet place, just you're alone. Go speak to God. Pray to your father in secret. Like Because God is omnipresent, you don't have to be in the temple or in a synagogue to be Heard by him. God's presence is not restricted to holy places. Any place you go to God with a pure, sincere heart that seeks him becomes a holy place. In a manner of speaking, your little prayer closet can turn into the holy of holies, so to speak, when you seek him there with a pure heart. Now, it's worth clarifying, Jesus is not forbidding public prayer here. We've seen this several times in the Sermon on the Mount. And people throughout church history have taken Christ's sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, especially way out of context and made them mean all sorts of different things. 
They apply a wooden literalism. They end up falling into the same legalistic hypocrisy as the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a very sad irony. But no, Jesus is not establishing a new sacred place for his disciples to pray. As if now the only place God accepts prayer is in a closet. That's not the case. Back then, a lot of people had houses with only one room. They had no inner room. So are they just not allowed to pray? No, Jesus and the scriptures have a high view of corporate prayer when it's done appropriately. Jesus himself, he prayed outside all the time. He prayed in public all the time. He led his disciples in prayer. And they did the same thing. His disciples prayed in public. His disciples prayed corporately. The early church followed suit. We see them gathering together, devoting themselves to prayer. They're praying together all the time. You see in Acts 12, the Jerusalem church is gathered praying together for Peter to be released from prison. Many examples throughout the Old and New Testaments of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer among believers has great value as they lift up their voices to God with one heart, with one accord that pleases the Lord. Look, you don't have to go any further than the next passage to show this. Matthew 6, down in verse 9, Jesus gives us a model prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. You see how that prayer begins. It says, our father, in the plural. It does not say my father. It says our father. He's already putting prayer in a corporate context. The Lord is pleased when his people come together and pour out their hearts together to him in prayer. And when a father comes home from work and he has many kids, does he just want his kids to come greet him one by one in a little single file line, all separate and distinct from one another? Maybe sometimes, but I think more often the father is pleased when they all just run up to him all at once, latch onto his legs, and just greet him all together. Our father in heaven is delighted when his children seek him together. All right then, but in context, what is the point Jesus is making? It's not hard to see. As with giving, the problem does not have to do with the deed, but with the motive And so his correction is all about not the deed, but the motive. Christ's words are correction for the one who is prone to prideful prayer. All of us still have the sinful flesh, which seeks to exalt self above God. And therefore, none of us are immune to putting on a performance when we pray before others, that others might revere us. And so it's that heart to which Christ's command speaks. The problem is not praying in public. Just like back in verse 2, the problem is not giving to the poor. That's not the problem. The problem is doing these things to be seen by others. That's the problem. It's a motive issue. And the problem really is pride. And so as you wrestle with pride, then go pray in, in private. Go be alone. There you're undistracted from others. And you avoid the temptation of your flesh to be noticed. Praying in private is a way to make no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts to be seen by others. And so look, if the mold of pride tends to corrupt your fruit of prayer, well, you pray in private, you're, you're cutting it off at the source. You're excusing yourself from that temptation. But this teaching, as with most of Christ's teaching, at the end, it, it just comes down to the heart. Like you could still take what he says Now, literally, and say, okay, I'm only ever going to pray in private. You could do that. But if pride still rules your heart, you're going to be one of those people who then just broadcast how much they pray all the time. Like, well, I'm so tired this morning. I woke up at six, prayed for two hours before work. 
And just like that, your fruit spoils. You prayed in private, but it's just as rotten. Either way, have no tolerance for such pride. Your life, and certainly your prayer life, is not about you. It's about the Lord. Your focus should be on God alone. So what he's saying is you've got to shut others out. And then you've got to shut yourself out. Meaning yourself is not involved. You're not thinking about yourself. not self-conscious. The issue is not the place of prayer, public, private. It's the place of your heart. The issue is not secrecy. It's sincerity. It's not about where you pray. It's about why you pray. And you get all that right, just pray anytime, and you can trust it will be a sweet harvest to God, wherever you are. I think we can put the heart of Christ's teaching here this way. I think the Bible has a high view of public prayer and private prayer. We want to do both. But whenever you pray, you should always have an audience of one. Whenever you pray, you should always have an audience of one. Whether you're alone or with the church, your prayers should only ever have God in mind. You pray as if you're talking to God alone. Because you are. Right? He's the only audience for prayer, right? Now here's the thing. Most people are self-conscious. Are conscious. And the root of pride goes down way deep inside all of us. And so you've been at times where you're doing a small group prayer. A community group prayer. A special event. Prayer circle. Something like that, a prayer meeting. And it, it comes around, it's, it's your turn to pray. And the group will listen and pray alongside you. And I guarantee there's been a time where you, you became self-conscious. You stopped worrying about God. You started worrying about others, which really means you're worrying about yourself. Maybe you feel the need to try and impress others. I mean, you, you wouldn't want them thinking you're, you're a weak, immature Christian. You've got it all together, so... Now, maybe you slip into Elizabethan English in your prayer. You know, oh, thou giving God, my heart is drawn out to thee in thankfulness. It's like, you don't talk like that ever. Like, maybe you deck the Lord out with 10 honorific titles. Oh, Lord Jesus, the great I am, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the lion from the tribe of Judah. We pray to you. Maybe you pepper in all these theological terms. You sound informed. Like, Lord Christ, we thank you for your hypostatic union. We thank you for the, the redemption. You made propitiation for our sins. Just kind of keep going. Maybe the person who prayed right before you delivered this heartfelt, impassioned plea, they're almost at tears, and you're thinking, like, how am I going to follow this? You feel like you, you feel the pressure to step up your prayer game because you don't want people thinking your faith is bland. These are all some of the ridiculous games we play when we pray together because we're just proud. And if you play these games, then you're playing the hypocrite. Again, whenever you pray, you should always have an audience of one. No matter the context, whether you're alone or not, you just you have to forget the human audience. Prayer only ever has a heavenly audience, an audience of one. So you have to guard his warning here. Take care. Never let your prayer devolve into a performance. Because then it's, it's disqualified. It's, it's spoiled. Just speak to God from your heart. Look, in a group setting, yeah, this might make you vulnerable in a sense. What will others think when they hear how childlike my faith is? What will they say when they learn I'm a sinner, I'm struggling, my, my devotion isn't that great? What if they judge me? Maybe they will. But that's on them. The Lord will judge them. 
As for you, just focus on doing what is right. And when it comes to prayer, it never involves praying to impress others. Just pray to exalt the Lord and talk to God, your Father. For you, if this means at times you need to abstain from public prayer, then do so. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, I need to just get my heart right. Maybe next week, that's perfectly fine. Just do whatever you need to do to get your heart right in prayer or in private. Then you take your prayers to the Father. And then you find, lastly here, number four, the promise. Finishing verse uh, six, the promise. He says, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He gives the same rebuke for all these examples. He gives the same promise for all these examples. For giving, for praying, for fasting. He says, your father will reward you. The nature of this reward is not delineated. But we can be assured God will bless those who commune with him from pure hearts. He's a God of multiplied, manifold blessings. And he loves to care for his children. Now we should note again, this reward is not presented as our motivation here. It's not a carrot on a stick. He's not appealing to our selfish desires to help us overcome the wrong motive of pride. The fact that God rewards us for our spiritual fruit, that's just his grace upon grace because we can do nothing apart from him. We rely on his grace for the fruit. But it's just a reminder that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And and that's why we pray. The right motive is simply love for God. You love your God, your Father. You want to talk to him. You want to thank him. You want to praise him. Maybe take a need before him. But look, just consider when you pray, it's as if you're being translated into his throne room. A prayer thing is it's the most spiritual thing we can do. The least earthly, most heavenly thing we can do. You're, You're being translated as if you're in his throne room. You're before the mighty king. It's a terrifying thing to stand before a mighty king. But this king is your father. And so you can go before him in confidence. He even bids you come all the time. And so we can, we should approach God as our father through Christ, the one mediator, all the time with confidence. Now, up at this point from Christ's teaching, you're, you're convicted of a couple of things. One, the need to pray from right motives. And two, just the need to pray. Right, that we would be a people of prayer. That, that they would say of us, they love to pray. Not just they love to pray to be seen by others, but they, they love to pray just because they love their God. They love their God and they talk to him. Be challenged to pray, to love to pray because you love God and then to pray with the right motives, an audience of one. God will be pleased with your fruit. Now we're not quite done. First here, verses 5 through 6, Jesus tells us how the deed of prayer spoils by wrong motives. Get that same warning, rebuke, command, and promise. Same as he did with giving, verses 2 through 4. Same as he will do with fasting, verses 16 through 18, three in a row. But unlike giving and fasting with prayer, he has more to say. Giving, fasting, they're quick. Prayer, he's got a lot more to say here in the middle. This deed is so essential to the life of a disciple that Jesus wants to tell us a few more things. He wants to help us because like we said, this sweetest of spiritual fruits can spoil in more ways than one. So we get some bonus material. And the next two verses, seven and eight, 
He's going to show us a second way the deed of prayer can spoil and what to do about it. So we're going to keep going and have a second point here. First was getting the motive of prayer wrong. And second, he tells us about getting the manner of prayer wrong. It's simple, but we need to hear it. Getting the manner of prayer wrong. God wants your heart, which is something he's been making painstakingly clear throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. But don't let that fool you into thinking he only wants your heart. He wants all of you, your heart first, and secondly, your mind. He wants your mind devoted to him. We find in verses 7 and 8 that that mindless prayer is just as offensive to God as heartless prayer. When you get the motive of prayer wrong, you disengage your heart from prayer. It spoils the fruit before him. But likewise, when you get the manner of prayer wrong and you disengage the mind, it's still spoiling the fruit before him. We need to get both right. So let's find out what he's getting at. Look at verse 7. He goes on and says, and when you are praying, still assuming you're going to pray. Another warning pops up. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Now before, Jesus formed a contrast with the heartless prayers of the Jews. Now he's forming a contrast with the mindless prayers of the Gentiles. Both are wrong. Verse 7, he says again, assuming you're going to pray, when you pray, do not use meaningless repetition. That's something which characterized the the pagans around them, the Gentiles. That phrase, meaningless repetition, comes from a single Greek word, batalogeo. It just speaks of repeating the same sounds over and over again. William Tyndale, in his first English translation of the Bible, most likely invented the English word babble just to translate this word and retain its onomatopoeia. Among the Gentiles, ancient records attested that they used meaningless gibberish in their prayers as kind of like magical incantations to try and appeal to their gods. Like the word abracadabra, it doesn't mean anything, it's just kind of gibberish. They would utter, not words, but vowels, consonants, sounds, just gibberish, babble, thinking that would commune and get the ear of the gods. As a side note, I already think this is a a stunning rebuke of misguided charismatic Christians today who believe the gift of tongues is this private prayer language where they mutter gibberish, believing they're actually communing with God on a higher level. That practice is never seen in scripture. It's literally the definition of this meaningless repetition, this idle babble, and it's far more pagan than Christian. I mean, isn't that what the prophets of Baal did in 1 Kings 18? They're facing off against Elijah. It's a prophet you know, battle. And this, the, the contest was simple. Whichever prophets could call down fire from heaven first would prove theirs was the real God. Either Yahweh or Baal. And 1 Kings 18 says the prophets of Baal called on the name of their God from morning until noon, repeating the same thing. They just kept muttering the same thing over and over again all, all day. They leapt about their altar. They were cutting themselves. And with the loud shouts of raving lunatics, they just repeated their babble all day long. And they heard nothing. No fire came. Their multiplied babble never reached heaven because there's only one God in heaven. His name is Yahweh. He does not respond to meaningless repetition. He doesn't want your mind disengaged, speaking some babble to him as if that's prayer. So listen to Jesus. Do not 
Be like them. Do not use meaningless repetition. You know, one of the reason, or reasons God loathes meaningless repetition is that it expresses a low view of him. You know, the reason the Gentiles employed long repetitious prayers was they believed they needed to fatigue the gods to answer. They had to weary the gods with many words that they'd finally just give in and give them what they wanted. You've got to nag the gods until they listen. Jesus affirms this was their objective. He says in verse 7, they suppose they will be heard for their many words. It's a prayer. It's just, it's a a quantity game. Just all about quantity. Forget quality. You just need quantity. Eventually they'll give in and give you what you want. Now, unfortunately, some Jews later fell into this mindless notion of prayer. The more ritualistic their prayer life became, the more mindless it became. They started making prayer a scheduled activity throughout the day, 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. That by itself is nothing wrong with that, but it can have the effect of making prayer feel like a scheduled activity, programmed. They also started prescribing rote prayers. Rabbi said Jews had to recite the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 twice a day, morning and evening. They had to recite all these canned prayers before meals, after meals, all throughout special times of the day. Later, the Mishnah said Jews had to pray the tefillah or the 18 benedictions three times a day. They could not stop these prayers. Even if a snake was coiled around their, their leg, it said that you have to pray these prayers and keep going. And so over time, you had all these carefully prescribed, scheduled, rote prayers. And look, the Jews were not using mindless babble like the Gentiles. They were using real words, but their prayers could be just as mindless. In a sense, it's easy to go through the motions. Like, how fast can I recite the Shema? Just get this over with. I've got to say these evening prayers. Maybe I could do the dishes at the same time. Like, ancient multitasking. (laughs) And you know that their minds at times just weren't in it. So whether you're using babbling speech or real words, a mindless prayer can be just as pervasive today. Anytime your mind is disengaged, it's not prayer. And the Buddhist monks in Tibet employ what they call prayer wheels. These are large cylinders that they inscribe thousands of prayers on, and they spin around. And so you walk past them, you spin them, and if you spin a prayer wheel, you accumulate the same merit, or they call it karma, as if you had prayed those prayers. So one spin of the wheel, you just prayed a thousand prayers, and you got all that merit. And they literally have water and wind-powered prayer wheels that do the spinning for them. So talk about completely mindless prayer. Roman Catholics today are not much better. I remember my grandma sitting on the couch, clutching the rosary, going from bead to bead, just saying the the rosary over and over again, repeating the same words. When you're praying the rosary, you pray one Our Father prayer, ten Hail Mary prayers, and then one Glory Be prayer. Then you do that five times over. Never mind the fact that they're praying to Mary 10 times more than they're praying to God. I mean, the rosary can be just an extremely mindless, repetitious activity. Look, we need to clarify again, verse 7, Jesus is not forbidding long prayers. Many examples of great long prayers in Scripture, Jesus at at times seemed to have prayed all night long before big decisions. Nothing wrong with long prayers. He's also not forbidding repeating prayers. Jesus repeated the same prayer three times in Gethsemane. And in Luke 18, he gives a parable 
extolling, persistent prayer. That's not the problem. The problem is not repetition. It's mindless repetition. Now, they, they usually go together. You tell someone to pray the same thing 50 times in a row, and even the most pious zealot's mind is going to shift into neutral after a little while. But the point is, God never wants our minds disengaged when we pray. I hope you understand that. Never think of prayer like Eastern meditation, which is all about emptying the mind. Biblical prayer is the opposite. It's about filling the mind with truth, renewing your mind, and then talk to God. Talk to God with a full mind of his word. He wants us to actively recall who he is and what he has done when we approach him. You you go look at any prayer in the Bible, and it's just full of truth. God is a God of truth. He must be approached in truth. Prayers must be driven by truth to disengage the mind. It's like putting a car in neutral. It doesn't matter how long you're in the car or how long you press the pedal. You're not going anywhere. You have no power. Likewise, mindless prayers have no power. They don't go anywhere. So look at verse 8 one more time. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Here we see Christ's simple prescription again. Just don't, don't do that. Don't be like them. Prayer is meant to be a righteous deed, an expression of faith, but that fruit spoils quickly when it becomes mindless. And so don't pray like them. We have to say, just because you don't spin a prayer wheel or pray a rosary doesn't mean you're immune to mindless prayer. We too can just as easily succumb to mindless prayers. Did you know that there's no command for Christians to pray before meals? That's not in the New Testament. You're not going to find a command saying you must pray before every meal. That's just part of Christian culture. You become a Christian, you learn pretty soon. I guess it's expected we have to pray before every meal. How far, like chips and guac first or after? You know, you have these debates like when to pray, but it's something you're supposed to do. How often are those prayers mindless? Or your small group prayers, your bedtime prayers, whatever. Anytime you're just calling it in and going through the motions, you're praying like the Gentiles. But we shouldn't pray like them because we don't think like them. We don't think of God like them. The reason Gentile prayers go so wrong is because they think of God so wrong. They think of God like a man. The Greek gods were basically semi-divine corrupt men. The men who needed to be pestered to act and help people, men who needed to be informed of what's going on here on earth. The gods were ignorant. Your prayers inform them of what you needed. But the God of heaven is not a man. He does not need to be pestered to respond. He does not need to be informed. Do you think the purpose of prayer is to let God know what you need as if he was previously ignorant? This is the creator God we're talking about. He's omnipresent. So he can hear your prayer in your little prayer closet. And he's omniscient, so he already knows what you need before you even ask him. That's what Christ says. So when you pray, you have to approach God as God, knowing who he is, believing who he is, revering him, and talking to him accordingly. God is not a man. But the good news is that Jesus revealed he's not a man, but he is a father. He is your heavenly father. He's a father who knows what you need before you ask him. Yet a father who still delights to hear from his children. A father who is intensely concerned with the lives 
of his children. So if you want to get the manner of prayer right, it's just about going before God, who's a king, but who's also your father. You approach with a humble, childlike faith and dependence on him. You go before him not to bend his will to your will and get all the stuff you want, but to submit your will to his perfect will. You go not to pray, my will be done, give me all my stuff, but you pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray, you take your praises, you take your needs, you lay them before his feet. You take your thanksgivings, you take your supplications, you put them on the altar. But then you just trust your father who is in heaven to do what is right. Because that's all he ever does. And trust him. Just look to the prayer life of Jesus himself. Jesus was completely devoted to prayer, but never once meaningless repetition. Didn't that tell you something? He did not give memorized incantations when the clock struck noon or whatever. His prayers were personal, spontaneous, frequent. They're just peppered throughout the day. Just continual prayer. He prayed as one living in in constant communion with his Father in heaven. And that is what our prayer life must be. Pray in such a manner as if you're standing in the presence of your God, your King, and your Father, because you are. There's just one big kicker, though. You have to ask, is God your Father? Is he your Father? He's the creator of all, but only the Father of some. How then do you gain entrance into his family? There's only one way. It's by adoption. He has no naturally born children. We're all sinners cut off in rebellion. All of us are like that prodigal who ran away from the father's house, wanting nothing to do with the true God or his ways. Each of us has turned to his own way and exchanged the truth and the glory of God for a lie, for self. And so now, All of us, before salvation, we only know God as judge. That's it. He's just, he's judge. But thank God that the love of God is so great, he sent his only begotten son, God the Son, to earth for us. To live as us, as one of us. A perfect life, a sinless life. And yet still die on the cross. Where he did make that substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. He paid all of our sin debt. He rose from the grave having finished his work, and in all he purchased redemption for us in his blood. And so now it's by faith in him alone, a total dependence on him as Lord and Savior, that that you can be saved, forgiven, reconciled to your God, to your maker. You go from enemy to friend. More than that, by God's exceeding grace, you go from friend to child. He adopts you into his family eternally. There's no undoing that. By faith, you become adopted you become a child of God, and that's how God goes from being your judge to your father. And if you haven't, you must believe upon this Christ today. You don't know when that day of judgment will come. They're calling him as your savior today. Cry out to God to have mercy on you, and he will. Only after you do that does the door to heaven's throne room unlock for you. You get a house key, you might say. He bids you to come. The children... They go to their fathers with their praises and their needs, not to a stranger, because they know their father knows them, cares for them, loves them, and the father is delighted with this dependence. And so it is with God. You don't need tricks to gain his attention. He's the one trying to get your attention. All you need to do is speak to him as your father who is in heaven with a sincere heart, 
and he will hear you. Now, obviously, we can't say everything there is to say about prayer in this short message. There's more to come. You might wonder at this point, okay, so if I'm going to pray to God as my father, like, what do I say though? Like, how do I pray? And right after this, Jesus is going to give us a model prayer. And we'll see that next time. But for now, it suffices to just not spoil your prayers before they even make it to his ear. That happens when you get the motive wrong or the manner wrong. When you disengage your heart or your mind. And so guard against this. Take Christ's warning seriously. Be careful, he says. Take care not to do that. But go to him as your heavenly father with hearts full of truth, minds full of truth and devotion. You'll find grace and help in a time of need. So why don't we all do that together and pray to our father who is in heaven right now. Our father who is in heaven, we pray hallowed be your name. Lord, you've given us the, the ultimate privilege for especially for fallen creatures, that is to come before you, to know you and to be redeemed by you and then to to speak to you, to enter into your own throne room as we can do right now, praying as your people with one heart, one mind, one voice uh, to our our one Father in heaven. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, whom we we see this morning. We hear his teaching, always so profound. He was the, the Lord of all truth. We thank you for his words, which affect us. We thank you for his gospel, which saves us. Thank you for sending your only son to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that others might become sons and daughters. For otherwise, we, we truly were hopeless, without hope in this world, uh, without a prayer. Thank you, Christ, for your work, your death and resurrection. And we thank you for the gift of adoption. We know that well, and the joy of, of calling one to be your own. Your heart is big for your children, Lord, those whom you've called by your name. If any here have not yet been called, we, we pray you move them. You move in their hearts. You humble, soften their hearts to realize what this life is all about. And you've put eternity in their hearts. Call them to yourself. And may they respond. May they turn to the Savior now and forevermore. And for us who have been called, may we not take advantage or, or forget this privilege of prayer. We have a Father in heaven, a mighty King, an all-knowing God but a kind, merciful, gracious father who wants to hear from us. So we need to to go home, call home. We need to speak to him. Convict us, Lord, to pray, to love to pray. But this morning, especially guard us against the wrong motive, the wrong manner. Just purify our hearts and our minds. We we need this reminder, this wake-up call, all of us, myself included, that we might be a people of pure prayer. We do love you. We do thank you for all things. May you be exalted by us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.